Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, tabletop war games, and board games. And today, we're going to talk about LGBTQA+, and TTRPGs. You also left an I out of your acronym there. Oh, there's an I in there? Yep. Cool. So it's going to be all acronyms all the time. TTYL. Yep. I'll do my best to explain acronyms as they come across. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And with me today... And my name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them. And I'm drinking my elder brain juice out of my pronoun coffee cup in celebration. Hooray! But before we get into our main topic... We're going to do our segment, The Weekend Hobby. So, Ed, what have you done the last weekend hobby? Uh, I kind of did some, like, roundabout hobby stuff. Uh, for whatever reason, I just haven't been able to bring myself to do a whole lot, including my competition piece, which got sent back to the contest uh, about half finished. So we'll see how that goes. But I did get my 3D printer all back up and running. I've been doing a little bit of research to try and find some better ways of getting things done, and it seems to have helped with my success rate uh, somewhat. I am currently having some issues with a particular set of models that I'm trying to print, and for whatever reason, the right leg of these models just does not want to print, and I can't figure out why. So I get to do my favorite thing, which is not my favorite thing, which is adding supports to unsupported STL files because it's annoying. And at least at my skill level, it's a lot of trial and error, but I'm trying to make a custom printed set of knockoff squat miniatures for Stargrave. One of the 3d artists that I support on Patreon tries to kind of follow like the trends of whatever is happening in 40 K and adjacent games and does stuff that's related or could be used as like proxies or extra bits. So this one is uh, Space Dwarves versus Space Skaven. So been doing that and... Yes, Space Skaven. Woo! Rats in space! Yeah, that's pretty much it. I did a little bit of starting work on a new set of Lannisters. I'm painting black on all the stuff that's going to get... shiny silver but it's yeah it's been an uneventful hobby week uh you also submitted to a competition yeah but i'm not thrilled with my output i've been i was curious the last couple of competitions that i entered in my work was half finished and not to the quality that i wanted and i was like why is this a new thing in the past i've gone to competitions with finished pieces and been moderately uh, satisfied with my output. And then I realized, oh, all those happened when I was recovering from COVID for like two months and I wasn't at work. And I basically spent all my time painting because I couldn't do much of anything else. Yeah, I think in those cases, the competitions seemed like they also had slightly longer deadlines. This one seemed very short, which was part of why I didn't enter it. Yeah, this one was like two weeks. I think the previous one was two weeks. Um, I think the ones from the quarantine period, they might have been a month. 
Yeah, they were at least three weeks. Yeah. Which, I don't know why they changed it to such short notice, but I guess there are some people out there who like that kind of speed painting. I know at least one other person who entered the contest, so yeah. Speed painting competition, it's... For me, it's like, if you if, if I'm trying to paint for speed, it's got to be one where they're like, okay, you have 20 minutes to paint this model and go. And I like doing that to see, you know, how how fast I can do that. But if it's one where they're like, you know, take your time, do your thing, you've got like a week. For me, I'm just like, no, no, bro, that's way too short because I am an incredibly slow painter. Yeah, I, I'm a moderately fast painter when I can be bothered to paint. The stack of plastic on my table that I'm staring at that is primed and nothing else probably indicates that on average, I'm much slower than you. It depends on what I'm painting. If I'm painting something that's a large project, like my Lannister army, I'm going to paint those to a much more tabletop standard. And, you know, if the dude's faces are just flesh tone with a little bit of ink wash, I don't care that that's how they're going to look from three feet away. Same with maybe my 40k orcs for kill team. But if I'm doing something like Frostgrave or Stargrave, which has a much smaller model count and there's more potential for people to be like, oh, let me, you know, take a look at this thing. Or if you're just generally on a closer inspection, I tend to go more detailed. Same applies for Crisis Protocol because I'm going for a very specific artistic style on that. But that one, <clears throat> excuse me, that game's not going anywhere anytime soon, so I can take as long as I want on that one. Speaking of which, I did find some nice neon paint for uh, uh, my Doctor Strange and Dormammu models, and it's UV reactive, so that'll be fun. I can't remember if I mentioned that before, but that was a couple of weeks ago I found that. I don't think you've mentioned that. I know you've been wanting to do that, but uh, happy you found some paint that'll work. Yeah, it's like bright neon, and then it also has the UV reactive element, which I found some UV reactive paints before, but they're uh, basically invisible until you hit them with a black light, and they don't mix well because the just the regular pigment in paint will cover that up. So, you know, you mix it in with your whatever color you're working with, and then just nothing happens when you hit it with the UV light. But this one, it's both bright and shines under the light. So I am excited to start working on some really weird Doctor Strange stuff. I mean, that could be cool if you were doing like Moon Knight or somebody where you paint them all white and then you do like Egyptian hieroglyphs in the neon or in the UV reactive over it where they don't really show up until you hit it with the UV light. Yeah, or maybe even just like a white UV reactive if you just hit him and just make him glow. Because at least in the newer comics, he just kind of has that very bright, glowing look to him. You know why he wears white, right? To save on printing costs? No, it's because he wants people to see him coming. Ah. Uh, I was expecting a joke there, but that actually does make sense. It, it gets brought up in the comics that he wants people to know that it's him who's coming to beat the crap out of them. I'd, I'm torn because I I like the the very nuts Moon Knight, but I also like the more restrained Moon Knight from the TV show. I find them to be both very valid interpretations of the character. 
I, I think the nuts Moon Knight works because you know that it's different personalities are different differing levels of nuts and the personality that super nuts barely makes an appearance in the TV show. So uh, maybe if they do a second season, we'll get that. So yeah, Marvel Crisis Protocol, it'll it'll be a thing someday. Yeah, we will crisis some protocols. Woo! Uh, so my weekend hobby, I had my two games. Uh, my Wednesday game fought the captain of a pirate airship, and oh boy, was that a fight. That was a knockdown, drag out, uh, that was a big one. They lit his ship on fire, he killed a familiar, they, like, slaughtered his crew, he blasted a guy using a wind spell to, like, knock him off of the airship and just falling to his doom. The party's artificer managed to snap out a feather fall in time so that, uh, did not kill the flare. Um, there was punching, there was a lot of magic, there was, yeah, attempts to throw people overboard. Good times. But they eventually won, and now they have their own airship, and they are figuring out how, what to do with that and how to hire a crew for it. So, um, that'll be fun. Did they have to go through a prize court to get that airship? Uh, sort of. They, they got it. And then they went to the Duke of the country that they're in, who they helped previously. They uh, helped him retake his position after his evil uncle had stolen it and murdered his father. And the Duke was like, oh, yeah, sure. No, I can make that happen for you guys. At least they did it the legal way. Yeah, it was a nice way to tie back into something they had just done to, like, ease out any sort of required formalities that they might have had to face otherwise. Nice for them to keep that stuff going. Also, the one of the characters that the players kind of dropped the game because of personal and technical stuff, his character pled guilty to murdering a guard and is now serving hard labor. Boo. I leave, that way I can bring him back if he figures out his stuff. Um, but yeah, now they've got an airship and they're preparing for a long voyage to... <sighs> something totally off away from the plot that I had originally come up with, but it's what the plot's going to be now. So that will be fine. Make sure they bring a lot of fruit so they don't get sky scurvy. <laughs> I don't think that's as much of an issue because it's only going to be like a two week trip and they're going to stop at the Dwarven Kingdom on the en route. So uh, the Thursday group, began their expedition deep into the jungle. Uh, this also involved them finding a magical journal from the previous expedition that as they reach places, it sort of unlocks new pages matching when the previous expedition got to that point. This is a way for me to, like, effectively give them an audio log or, you know, finding you know, your video game, finding whatever remnants of the past thing um but easier because i just have to write weird little journal entries for various events oh god the bees 
final entry. What? No, no bees. No, no, the final entry is, um, yeah, I have that kind of in mind already, and I'm not going to spoil anything. But some of them are, there's a whole, like, murder mystery also that'll be involved with it. It'll be good. It will be good. Um, but yeah, they began their expedition into the jungle. They fought some lizard folk and a hydra. They met with a village of different lizard folk and negotiated to get safe passage, which they were told they had to go uh, deal with some local swamp ragas, which uh, was the lizard's folk term for uh, any sort of evil magic user. It was a coven of hags. They had to deal with that. They did, but they got pretty zapped. They got pretty beat up. Lightning Bolt is not great when you're a, you know, just a random group of people and there's three hags hurling it around. I miss the bouncing Lightning Bolt from 2nd edition. I mean, Chain Lightning is still a spell and it does that. <laughs> it's just a higher level spell. Uh, the real fun bit was one of the hags was a Dusk Hag, I want to think say, which is an Eberron-specific one, which has a psychic damage attack. And wailed on the barbarian who had been recklessly attacking people, so... My brain! Hag with advantage doing damage to the barbarian that he does not have resistance again means he got really low on health and was in serious <laughs> danger, which is a first for him. Your attacks are bad and you should feel bad. Yeah, well, his having ludicrous amounts of health and resistance to all damage can be annoying at times, because he'll just tank everything. So, uh, wailing on him with something that ignored all of that was pretty fun. Also, multiple characters getting poisoned and paralyzed by things that they really should have passed those saves was <coughs> pretty funny. Um, but yeah, that good campaign. They have much more jungle to go through before they get to their initial destination, and then maybe a chase scene as they leave? Depends on how I want to play stuff out. Chased by dinosaurs. Uh, chased by the Guardian of Hakatorak. I'll allow it. Uh, yeah, it's, I think uh, Indiana Jones temple, uh, Indiana Jones, like, Aztec temple chase. <laughs> but with perhaps, you know, a dragon in the dungeon. Oh, boy. Yeah, so that'll be entertaining when we get to that. And yeah, that has been my week in a hobby. Hobby, hobby. So on to our main Someday topic. I swear we're going to get a soundboard. No, we're not. <laughs> that'll be just our running joke for this show. Never okay. have a soundboard. Okay, once we get a Patreon and people give us money... We will buy a soundboard. Buy a soundboard so you can hear nothing but people getting interrupted with the Soviet anthem over and over and over again. We did that once, though. Interrupted with air horns, then. All right, on to the main topic, which is all you. Woo! So it's June, which means that it's Pride Month. Uh, normally I'm super jazzed for pride, but this year has 
been difficult. Uh, the amount of just absolute vitriol that's been thrown around to the LGBTQ plus community has been demoralizing and it's getting downright genocidal. If I'm going to be honest, um, there was a pride event in Coeur d'Alene yesterday that the, uh, fascist group Patriot front tried to attack. Uh, they fucked around and definitely found out after somebody snitched on them and they all got arrested but there were still uh, guys from Adam Waffen division there who are so insane that they have a habit of killing their own members. Uh, there were a bunch of people walking around with guns trying to intimidate people at this family pride event. Uh, there are a bunch of really fucked up preachers saying that you should read your Bible and that you're going to hell because reasons to me, it's, basically the same thing as saying that you're going to hell because you put cinnamon in your coffee and God Emperor Leto II controls all the spice, so you shouldn't be putting spices in your coffee. So, yeah. Uh, Pride feels more difficult, but also much more important this year than in previous years, because a lot of people want us dead for arbitrary reasons that only make sense to them. So, how does Pride Month kind of fit into our gaming world? A lot of it is going to fall into the RPG spectrum of our board gaming adventure, um, mostly because being queer is a story. Essentially, everybody has their own story. I have my own story. One of my friends, you know, she has their own story and it's really hard to otherwise gamify the queer experience in a way that's not going to be just a joke. Um, there are some older games like Gayopoly, which is basically just a gay themed reskin of Monopoly. And then you have some... Uh, LGBTQ plus expansions for Cards Against Humanity, but a lot of those feel like they're just poking fun. And I guess if that's kind of what your in-group is into, if you're, you know, if you have your own queer gaming group and you want to play something that, you know, kind of pokes fun at the culture, I guess that's your prerogative. But a lot of it feels like it's punching down rather than celebrating anything. So trying to take what we would consider normal gaming mechanics and adding them in a way that makes it specifically queer is very difficult. Um, so that's what brings us to RPGs, because RPGs are all storytelling. And a lot of the stuff that I found, and honestly for this whole episode... Um, I did this on kind of short notice because it was just a insp inspiration thought that I had where I was like, hey, we should do this for the show. And that gave me with like a week to research. But there's so much depth to this topic that I might not be able to do it justice. Maybe I'm not the best person to talk about it. We'll do a sequel episode in that case. Nobody get mad. Yeah, um, but there's there's a lot 
a lot of information that's out there. It's just that unlike my episode about the Soviet Union, where I've had like 20 years of reading and research about the Soviet Union, I had a week for this one and my own passing knowledge around the queer community because I haven't been out that long. It took, you know, 30 some odd years to put the pieces together, plus being trapped uh, in the house with myself during the pandemic to really kind of figure out myself. And it's not a finished process. It's a process that's probably going to be lifelong and never ending, which a lot of people would probably also find as a similar experience. So I'm going to do my best. And uh, on a note of uh, labels, queer is the label I apply to myself. It's a reclaimed slur from back in ye bad old days. Um, there are some people who still might take offense to it. And if you do, my apologies. It's not what I'm trying to do. It's just the label that I have applied to myself because it's the one that fits the best. So it's not it's not intended as a slur. Uh, just saying LGBTQIA plus uh, gets mouth some after a while. So with all that rambling out of the way, um, when it comes to RPGs and queer storytelling, a lot of it is can be very experimental or, I guess, new from what we would consider a regular RPG experience. Most RPGs, if you ask somebody, you know, what is Dungeons and Dragons about? What is Edge of the Empire about? It's about, you know, you take your... And so when you ask, you know, what are these games about? It's about you and your buddies going to do some fighting, maybe do some stealing or some seducing if you have a bard. And, you know, that's kind of the the stereotypical niche that RPGs have been put into. And you can definitely add in queer storytelling, queer characters, all that into the games, you know, per your group and the individuals in it. Um, but like the topics of the queer experience are not something that necessarily is what the game is built around. And so those are the games that I was looking for more in trying to write this episode. And so a lot of the queer experience is built around uh, interpersonal and sexual relationships or lack thereof. And so that's where a lot of these games are going to kind of tread thematically. Um, the big one that seems to have kind of the most spotlight at the moment is called uh, Thirsty Sword Lesbian Lesbians by April Kit Walsh, who's a, a, a trans woman. And this game is based on the Powered by the Apocalypse system, which I've noticed for a lot of the games that I found is a popular one. I don't know if it's just because it's an easy system to use or if it's a system that has a very lenient open gaming license. Uh, I can interject for a minute. We will do an episode about Powered by the Apocalypse at some point in the near future, I think. Um, I will say that it is a game system that focuses very heavily on storytelling. Mm -hmm. 
and very heavily on providing players with the opportunity to direct the story. Yeah. Which would seem to focus really well with the idea of providing a way to look at player experiences and player, um, you know, overcoming challenges that aren't simply slaying a goblin or delving into a dungeon. So I think it fits pretty well with what you're trying, with what authors are trying to do. And like you said, it does also have a very strong open gaming license. So it's easy to make a game in the system. A large focus on storytelling. There's not a whole lot of like mechanical crunch behind it. Uh, if you're familiar with Powered by the Apocalypse, you're going to know what I'm talking about, how they give you just, a, they give you a couple of stats, you make some rolls, and then that roll gives you some degree of success and not necessarily even failure, but like in a, a chance to uh, improv on your own. And for Thirsty Sword Lesbians the actual the actions that happen in the game it's not necessarily just you hit your opponent with the sword it's like what is happening as a dynamic between these two characters and the example that i came up with was the end of return of the jedi when vader and luke are having their lightsaber duel and they're kind of like sneaking through the various areas of the throne room kind of taunting each other it's like yeah luke is you know now an inexplicably good swordsman we can discount that out but the actual look he had like a couple of weeks of training that's that's <laughs> clearly enough he he had a montage where he did backflips and carried someone on his back you need a montage yeah he got the training montage so of course he powered up <laughs> so yeah the the swordsmanship in this scene is not the thing that's in question. It's the psychological back and forth between the two characters. That is what is really driving and impacting the scene. And so thirsty sword lesbians would handle a situation like combat very similarly where, you know, it's not necessarily your physical prowess as a sword lesbian, but you know, what is your relationship to this villain or other character and how are you how are you using your relationship or information that you have about them to help keep driving this scene forward and that's essentially how every action in this story works it's not necessarily what's happening it's how is this action impacting your character Instead of HP, you have various conditions, um, which I should have written down here in my notes. Um, but when you would suffer damage like you would in Dungeons and Dragons, instead you suffer a condition such as you're angry, you're hopeless. Um, there's four others that I'm forgetting, and I feel dumb for not writing them down. But each one that you mark off gives you some kind of negative negative trait like if you're angry you're not going to be as rational during an interaction and once you have all five of those conditions checked off your character becomes defeated for that scene because you've just lost your will to fight your will to go on rather than necessarily you know being unconscious and bleeding out 
And what I find interesting is that also as the result of some actions, you can inflict those conditions upon yourself for a short-term uh, short game. So, you know, if you're trying to do an action that could potentially make you angry, you can take that anger condition to get a temporary mechanical advantage to what you're doing in the scene. But for the rest of it, you're going to be angry and it's going to impact everything else you do. Uh, it looks like it's angry, frightened, guilty, hopeless, and insecure. Yes, thank you. So those are definitely all uh, very vivid emotions, particularly for the queer experience I've gone through. I feel like all of those uh, emotions just in the last week. So it doesn't feel like uh, the author just picked random emotions out of a hat and said, okay, these are our conditions. These feel very specific to the experience in the story that the author is trying to tell. All right. And so for uh, thirsty sword lesbians, instead of uh, your regular character classes, um, you have what are called playbooks. And I like the way that these run because they're not necessarily like a profession like you would have in D&D. They're, it's like you said earlier, it's more of an archetype of a personality. And so you have uh, the Beast, who is somebody who has a like feral, almost lichen uh, form to them, and they're struggling to fit in with society that you know wants them to stay human and not be their uh, their beasty nature. And you get uh, like feral points, and the more feral you get, the more uh, bestial you become. And you can get mechanical advantages for being that beast, but it's also a disadvantage because people are like, oh, wow, you are different and I don't like that, uh, which is definitely something no queer person has ever had any experience with ever. Insert sarcasm. Um, let's see. There's also the Chosen, which is somebody who's been told that they are supposed to be something and that they're trying to live up to those grandiose expectations and during the game, uh, certain conditions can be met, which will either bring that prophecy closer to you or further away. And that can have impacts on the story. There's the devoted, uh, somebody who feels particularly passionate about a person or a cause. And they've dedicated their entire life to that. So think like anti-fascist activist kind of thing. Uh, infamous, somebody who's trying to redeem themselves in the eyes of society, either because of something that bad that they did or were have perceived to have done, and is trying to fit in um, and just redeem their their own sense of self. Uh, Nature Witch, who is a character that's more connected to the environment and less than less than they are their human companions. Let's see what else scoundrel kind of a roguish type. Uh, their whole thing is they want to see and do everything. Um, let's see what else we got. The seeker, uh, somebody who comes from a toxic community and is trying to expand 
uh, beyond their upbringing. So think somebody who grew up, grew up in a uh, Christian cult and was ostracized for either being gay, lesbian, trans, what have you. Uh, Spooky Witch is a character who kind of does their own thing and has connections with otherworldly beings that others can't perceive. And so they have to conform. They have to try and balance like how much they want to conform versus just doing whatever they want. I kind of feel like spooky, Witch would be my personal class. And then uh, the trickster is a character who has issues uh, being close with people and being vulnerable. And so they kind of close themselves off and, live behind a mask of uh, basically trickiness or like false, false happiness, kind of that toxic positivity uh, idea. And so all these characters, what I really like is that once, once you've maxed out your level, essentially, that means that your character's, story arc and their personal story has come to an end. So you can either have them live happily ever after where they've, you know, they've met their goal and they're going on to just continue living their life. Or you can have them switch a pl- switch their playbook and have them become a different character class entirely because something has happened that they, the central conflict of their story isn't, isn't the same anymore. And so they no longer fit with that archetype and they've changed as a person and their goals and what they're looking for has changed, which I think is a really cool way uh, to do characters. So those are the, those are the uh, various characters you can have. And there's a, a good section in the back of the book that says, you know, what if not lesbians? What if not swords? What if not thirsty? And as as the game is written, it's written in a very, very horny, very cheeky uh, kind of tone. But just because it's queer, it doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be that. It can be, you know, whatever you want the stories for your characters and your group to be. And not everybody who plays RPGs is necessarily going to be interested in those interpersonal topics or sex topics. Like for me, romance as a theme and just drama in general is not a theme that I enjoy that much. It just never has been. So there are elements of playing that kind of game. It's very like romance heavy that I just would not enjoy personally as a player, but um, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's there, but you don't necessarily have to conform to that as written because you want to make sure that it's a game that everybody can play, not just uh, this one very small audience. So it's, even though it, draws heavily and is centered around that queer experience and that history. Um, it's written as a game that anyone can play. And even to the DMs out there or the players who aren't necessarily interested in playing the game as written um, for, you know, whatever reason, 
I would say get this book anyway and read through it because the storytelling mechanics and the storytelling ideas will help your storytelling and how you write your characters and how they interact more than anything I've read in like a Dungeon Master's Guide. Just because of the different way that the game approaches its storytelling, I feel like it's going to help. Um, for instance, they have a mechanic called the Heartstrings mechanic. I think in some other uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games, they're called uh, like threads or connections. Uh, links is what they're called in the Sprawl. It's different for each system. The idea is that you're gaining some kind of influence, some kind of information, something that you can use against this character for good or for ill. And it's basically a, a story thread that you can pull on and see where it goes. And they work both ways. So if you have a character that, you know, wants to interrogate an, an opponent, they can they can do that, but there's also a potential that they may reveal some information about themselves or the character may only do so in being able to ask a question in return. So you can get threads against player characters as the GM as well. Um, and it's, it's a good way to mechanize that element of role-playing that's n that may be overlooked in other games Whereas in D&D, you might be just like, oh, roll for insight or uh, intimidate or something like that. And the mechanical dice roll is what says, hey, this is what happens. And then your DM kind of improvs on it. But by having that gamified element of this character has a link or some kind of tangible information on this character and the general rules lightness of the system means that it's not something that's necessarily going to get lost in the pages of the rules. So it takes a much more front and center seat and keeps with that theme of, you know, these are how these characters are interacting more so than what they're doing. It's the relationships between them. So even just that heartstrings mechanic itself, I would bring that into a D and D game because I, I feel like it would help with the storytelling. Yeah, I'm sure there's some interesting ways that you could kitbash that into Dungeons and Dragons. Or I guess just play a game that's not Dungeons and Dragons. I think there's probably some more straightforward fantasy powered by the apocalypse games. Uh, if you're not wanting to be thirsty or lesbian, but just have swords. Yep. Yeah, and you know, you can and like they said in the back of the book, you know, you don't have to be thirsty, sword, or a lesbian. To play the game so swords are required though yeah I'll, I'll allow that one the other ones the other ones you know it's uh they're up to the interpretation of the players and or the, the dm a lot of the one big issue that i came up with in researching this topic is a lot of it is how do you expand the audience for some of these games basically how do you get straight white dudes to play it Having having a way to work around that kind of explicit idea of, you know, this is only for queer people or this is only for so-and-so, that idea can be very exclusionary. So 
we want to make games more inclusive in general. So trying to bake in that experience, but also not make it so baked in that it's exclusionary is an issue that I saw in my, in my research that I was able to do. So. And speaking of making games more inclusionary, that's what a lot of major game makers have been trying to do the last few years. Yep. I was going to, I was going to say I'm wondering, but that leads us into uh, the next, the next idea. <clears throat> You're finding that there's getting a lot more just LGBTQ plus representation in general in the game space. Uh, there are a couple of examples that I found that seem to come up repeatedly. One of them was uh, Legacy of Dragonholt, which has uh, some queer characters and some queer storylines as part of that game. And then uh, Dead of Winter, Long Night, has a trans man character, uh, which I feel is significant because trans men often get kind of left out of the conversation when it comes to trans or queer issues, sometimes they can get overlooked. Um, the particular character I believe was in the original dead of winter and long night actually brings up a story thread um, that includes their, their story specifically. I mean, I would mention that a lot of dungeons and dragons material, especially in the last couple of years has added representation for the queer community massively and this has been somewhat controversial by jackasses who think anything is controversial yeah i don't i don't know how i forgot about that because uh around the time that i came out was around the time that i got the book for rhyme of the frost maiden and there's a character in the story canonically who uses they and them pronouns and it doesn't have any impact on the story. It's not a big piece of drama. It's just there. That is that character. They have a quest that they give. Those are their pronouns. And it was a little thing, but it would to me, at least it felt big. It was like, wow, there's, there's somebody who, you know, fictionally could have a similar experience and I don't I can't speak for everybody and I don't ever intend to feel like I would want to speak for everybody or that I should but even just those small acts of inclusion they seem small but they are very big to the people who see them and yeah, those people who take issue with it can fuck right off. Um, well, as a straight white man, I can and will speak for everybody, and I say inclusion is good. Hooray! <laughs> that is a joke. So, similar, uh, some other games that showed up, uh, there's one called Pursuit of Happiness, which is kind of like an update of the game of life. Um, and it doesn't place like any restrictions on like who you can marry or who your characters can hook up with. Um, there's another one called dance card, which is, uh, basically about trying to get in as many dances as you can at a nightclub. And it doesn't care who you dance with. 
you can do whatever you want. And I don't know. It's, it seemed, it seems kind of weird for some of these games to be just, you know, necessarily just like do whatever you want as opposed to being actively inclusive. I don't know what sentiment I'm trying to express here. Be inclusive, make games that are inclusive, uh, make games that have good mechanics that are inclusive. Yeah, basically be actively inclusive. Don't just ignore it and say, do whatever you want because that unacknowledgement can be more hurtful by not even considering that there are other options. And if you're going to be inclusive, uh, make sure that you're doing it in an active way. And like I said, just not just sweeping it under the rug. Um, see, I'm running out of time here. A couple other games that didn't get to, but we'll just give a quick shout out to, um, underground broadcast, which is another, uh, micro RPG based on powered by the apocalypse made by Will Ole, UHL, I think I'm pronouncing their name properly. Uh, they're an agender game designer, and it's got uh, Jet Set Radio vibes where you're a bunch of skateboard and rollerblade punks going around trying to take down a fascist government. I really like that one. Um, there's a modification of Honey Heist called Be Gay, Do Crimes, which is made by uh, Evan Saft, non-binary games designer. Uh, basically, you're a group of queer criminals trying to do something, and everybody has a secret crush on somebody else in the heist group, and uh, shenanigans ensues. Uh, what else? And then another one that was definitely follow falls under the experimental category of games, uh, it's called Together We Write Private Cathedrals by Rufus Roswell, uh, who's a uh, trans man game designer. Uh, it plays off the meme of historians looking at two people who very much were in a romantic relationship and being like, oh, these were just really good roommates or they were really good friends. Ah, yes. Yeah, so the two players take turns basically writing love letters to each other. And you roll a die, and depending on the die roll, something happens outside of your letter that changes how it's interpreted. You know, if you roll a one, nobody sees your, nobody other than the person you're intending to see the letter sees it. Everything is good. Um, On a two, like people are getting suspicious. Um, And then, you know, say on a roll of a six, uh, the Catholic church somehow intercepts your letter and burns it. So the other person never gets it. So they never see that other side of the story. So when I, when I say that some of these games get pretty experimental uh, in their mechanics and their storytelling elements, uh, it's games like these that definitely challenge what we consider as gamers to be role-playing games. Yeah. Um, but experimental role-playing games are cool. Uh, even if they're not individually something that you want to play all the time, they're good to play because I feel experimenting in the role-playing game community is how you get better mechanics in role-playing games. 
Yeah, there's another one uh, that's powered by the apocalypse called A Cozy Den, which is about uh, lesbian snake women creating an underground den to basically keep warm in the winter. And one of the reviews that I read of it, they, the reviewer, they weren't super interested necessarily in the subject matter, uh, but they, they found it an interesting experience nonetheless. So stepping out of your predefined ideas of what you want to experience in games or what you expect is probably always a good idea. So I probably should play some kind of RPG that has some kind of romance element because that's not something I've done before and it's never something I'm interested in, but you never know. Yeah, try new things. Try new things, be inclusive, don't be a dick. Yes, don't try being a dick. Stay out of other people's business unless they invite you in. Sorry, this is this was a... I feel like this shouldn't have been a difficult topic to write about, but it was regardless. So if I do one for Pride Month next year, uh, if we get to have a Pride Month next year, I will uh, hopefully have some more research, maybe talk a little bit more about specific queer designers or some more history. So, yeah, it's a weird episode, but... It's what you get, because this show is free. But we also have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. Woo! And today we're talking about Escape the Dark Castle. I don't think I've heard of this one. You would probably like it. Uh, Escape the Dark Castle came out in 2017. It is a sort of... OSR choose your own adventure kind of old school style adventure game where uh, one to four players take on roles of various characters which tend to be like peasants rather than adventurers who have been locked in a jail inside the dark castle and then must escape. By going through a series of rooms, essentially you draw from a series of cards, each of which has a specific, like, encounter scenario of some sort that you have to defeat or get past, however, until you get to a boss that you have to defeat in order to escape. Um, it has custom dice that you use to roll. Uh, the dice are based on what your character is, um, because character stats are sort of determined by how good that dice is um and you know it's an interesting system it's very very like everything's in black and white the artwork is kind of stylized to be sort of that 70s 80s not entirely professional hand-drawn like monster manual kind of stuff um it has a couple of expansions, uh, adding in, you know, instead of just the Dark Castle, you can escape the Cult of the Death Knight, or the Scourge of the Undead Queen, or the Blight of the Plague Lord. You know, it's very old school, very kind of rough looking, but the actual gameplay is super slick, and, you know, you can get through it in about half an hour, 45 minutes. 
It's uh, good for one to four people. And they also have a sci-fi version called Escape the Dark Sector. I where, you know, think you can, I've heard uh, of that one before. Escape the Dark Castle came first. But I'm on I'm on board, but here's the most important question. Can you get Ye Flask? You can pick up items that are basically that, yeah. Because um, you can get items, you get various items to try and help you out, and those can range from, like, one-use potions to food that just gives you a little bit of health back to a sword or a shield or something. Um, yeah, it's... It's interesting. It's very sort of choose your own adventure slash uh, old school uh, dungeon crawl kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I, I like it. Um, it's fun. The The player characters are all so like weird and derpy. You can be the abbot, the miller, the cook, the tanner, the smith, the tailor. Like, you, no one is an adventurer. <laughs> no one is actually good at fighting or anything. You're just kind of... You have various stats that are... Um, I want to say it's like will, might, and intelligence. <laughs> Intelligent peasants? What is this revolutionary idea? Yeah, it, it's just you have three stats, and it's one is represented by an eyeball, one is represented by a star, one is represented by a fist. That it's super simple, and I think it's a really well-designed game. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you should probably pick it up, because it's very much up your alley. I like it. Yeah, so Escape the Dark Castle. If you're looking for a sort of one-to-four-player, choose-your-own-adventure sort of thing that, you know, is quick to play, good to play with friends... Um, but, you know, can be played solo because, like I said, one to four player, everybody is working co-op against the boss and against the, like, deck of the game, then you should look up Escape the Dark Castle. And that's a podcast. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, rate, leave a comment, do whatever you feel like. Don't be a jackass. Support charities unionize uh support ukraine help us plunge florida into the ocean uh you can follow me on instagram at animadness i've been posting some of my 3d print stuff there um you can get a null country branded prism it turns everything into exquisite rainbows because life and everything about it is a spectrum but if you want to uh, spend some money on something that actually matters, I have a long list of shameless plugs here. Uh, so the Trevor Trevor Project, uh, that's the first one. Uh, True Colors United is helping prevent uh, LGBTQ youth homelessness. Outright Action International, uh, because as much as it sucks here for queer people in the United States, it sucks much more for people in other countries. Um it gets better. Points of Pride, Trans Lifeline, um, Itch.io is currently doing a bundle sale of TTRPGs for reproductive justice. Uh, pay what you want for a minimum of five dollars, and you get a shit ton of RPGs. Um, if you're interested, 
in some self-defense because I think just as a human, uh, knowing some self-defense is a good idea. Look up uh, queer self-defense uh, classes on your Google. That should point you in some good directions. If you're a gun-toting queer like me, uh, check out Pink Pistols. They've got resources for uh, armed self-defense. And if you want some more uh, queer tabletop experiences, check out the newsletter More Seats at the Table, which is a newsletter written for and by people of marginalized gender identities who want to make more games in the tabletop space. And if you're uh, looking for some laughs, check out the Queens of Adventure. They're a drag queen group that plays D&D, and it's really, really funny. So, yeah, those are all my shameless plugs for uh, this week. Go Knowles. Woo! Go Knowles!